0: Well, hello everyone, and welcome to another Cigar Stream. We're going to be continuing with Peter H. Nichols' Britain's Blunder. Uh, We're over halfway through this uh, pamphlet now. Um, The next chapter is called Japan Collaborators Incidents Politics. I don't want to waste too much time. I'll just remind everybody that my uh, Christmas sale is on 25% off all courses uh, now, uh, Twenty uh, four. Uh, use the code VAXGLIDE two. That is VAXGLIDE two. Twenty five percent off all courses uh, until the new year. And uh, also, I should mention really quickly that I rearranged my, um, I reorganized my entire Substack and made all of the articles free on there. Um, now you can still um, subscribe to that and you know send money etc. But it would just be a case of, uh, you know, supporting me if you'd like to. Um, The other thing I've done is that the podcast versions of all of these shows have now been, it was driving me crazy that the podcasts were cluttering up the main feed. So it was pushing all of the written articles down, uh, because obviously I do more streams than I do written articles, and uh, you couldn't see them. It was just getting bodged up and cluttered. So it took me about four hours, but I, I rearranged everything. I used a kind of weird loophole within Substack to put all of the podcasts in a separate tab so they will no longer come up on the main feed. You'll still get notifications for them. Um, and, uh, you know, those of you who subscribe, you probably got a ton of them all at once. That's because I had a bit of a backlog. but not, And one of the reasons for that is because I didn't want um the shows pushing down you know everybody was reading my article on jewish iq and then i was like all oh, right if i put six shows there it's going to push it off the main page um i've i have now found something i'm happy with and um that should be the format for the substack going forward and now it's like that i hope to put out a few written articles uh with a bit more frequency i've managed about one a month or you know maybe, you know, three every two months or something like that. You know, I'm not as, um, I tend not to write for the sake of it only when I have something I really want to say or something, you know, like the Jewish IQ thing or um, various other interventions I've made uh, over time. Um, but yeah, uh, there's a few articles I actually want to write. There's one on Ameri- what I'm calling American textualism um, which I'm against. And I want to kind of really lay out that case, um, you know, and there, there, there's a few others, so look forward to them coming soon. But, um, yeah, I've, I've frankly, I thought, well, you know, when you write articles, you kind of want people to read them. And although there are quite a lot of paid subscribers, um, I just think it's better in general um, to have them all be free and you know if you want to support it you can if you don't then you can you know not do that um so there we go uh i have also figured something out with uh if you're a channel member here i figured something out now which i i I don't know if it's a new option or something i've just spotted but basically videos i can actually set to be exclusive so last night i made that video on the schmittian exception and um i was able to publish it and then give people like a 12 hour like channel members a 12 hour kind of preview where they could comment on it before anyone else so um that's a cool little thing uh, which i may do more going forward okay although i do think that if i use that option i can't premiere them in the same way um, so talking to it, he won't be able to go out like that, but other videos of mine will. All right, with all of that said, let's get a move on. It is Peter Nichol. I've enjoyed reading through this. Um, he's a quirky character, Nickel. I think. He's idiosyncratic. He's, uh, you know, like I've said before, he's kind of idealist and Christian and moralistic uh, in a way that I'm, you know, i.e. not like me, who is... Uh, always cold coldly realist in my analysis um but he's he's brought up many interesting points and let's see what he has to say about japan's involvement in the war so this is page 73 uh fortunately the my brit my copy of britain's blunder had coke spilt on it last week so the cover now is besmirched it's got a stain on it which i'm really really upset about because this is a hard book to find but uh Anyway, um, maybe one day when I die and people are bidding on my (laughs) books, they'll be like, hey, that was academic agent's copy. Look, it's got the coke stain on it. You know, uh, not that I'll ever be that famous. But anyway, uh, let's carry on. The stage was now set for the extreme and final combat. And that stage embraced the whole world for Japan suddenly went to war with the United States in December 1941 by delivering a crippling blow to the American fleet by her swift air attack on Pearl Harbor and by swooping down into Thailand and the Malay Peninsula. Britain, of course, declared war against Japan as soon as the news of the Pearl Harbor attack reached our government. The extraordinary initial success of Japan especially on land, alarmed the Allies. Um, And and I'll just say, uh, by the way, that uh, one of the things that I haven't been mentioning uh, during these streams is that there's quite a lot of stuff that you get in, uh, let's just say, revisionist accounts of the war that Nickel doesn't include a lot of the time, and he never really talks about the involvement of a certain... uh, You know of a certain group um i mean he's mentioned them but he hasn't talked about some of the kind of behind the scene things that were going on um and that's something that i'm sure a lot of people would have uh, picked up on um so there's definitely things that i know in other accounts i've read of this that nichols either wasn't aware of or just doesn't mention okay uh so let's carry on like for example on the pearl harbor I mean, maybe he will mention it, but um, I've seen various accounts that they kind of knew it was going to happen, for example, right? Now, that's disputed, obviously, and it really depends on which historians you read, but um, in some of the literature I've got, you know, uh, Ravelo P. Oliver, for example, he certainly thinks that, you know, they knew ahead of time and there was a kind of a false flag. Nickel doesn't really engage in that sort of revisionism. Okay, so he's quite. Um, how can I put it? Like, a lot of his arguments kind of deal with the same sort of facts that you'd see in your GCSE history. It's just that a lot of the time he has a different way of, different way of thinking about it. Okay, let's carry on. The extraordinary initial success of Japan, especially on land, alarmed the Allies. Singapore, which most Britons had believed was an almost impregnable outpost of empire, soon and easily fell, uh, and uh, uh, and soon easily fell, and a whole army of new British troops was captured. Uh, Burma was invaded, India was threatened, nearly half of China was dominated. Both America and Britain had to start from a new and very humble level of resources against this Far Eastern foe. They did not hesitate for a moment to do so. And once again, unconditional surrender was their declared policy. And I'll just mention, for example, uh, I'll just mention before we carry on, by the way, that despite the fact that I did, um, I covered the quote unquote Nazis in World War II in both GCSE and A-level history, we never once looked at this theater. We never looked at this sphere of the, you know, the war in the Far East or the war with Japan. They were just kind of in the background. We ne- I mean, not. It's not even that. We never looked at the Eastern Front. We never even looked at the Russian, the Russian-German war, which a lot of historians, um, like uh, uh, Norman Davis, for example, famous Oxford historian, has. Now, and um what's that other book? Stalin's War. You know that they've started to redress that a bit, looking at the Eastern Front a bit more. But this sphere, the war with Japan, is almost entirely ignored in British schools. Uh, mm. Certainly, in my experience, I mean, it was just like I was aware they were involved. Now, now, I think that in the American, in the American imagination, Japan is a lot bigger because of Pearl Harbor right and um you know i just know through like my love of wrestling and so on that they there was a long history of like japanese villains in in america as a result of this um but uh yeah much less in our imagination very much the world world war Two in the british imagination is the western is is the western european theater you know the 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 war in france and the blitzkrieg here and all the rest of it, for obvious reasons okay but yeah just worth mentioning uh they they proceeded to build up new forces on land and sea from inexhaustible resources they knew that given time they would outmatch japan in these resources and that ultimate victory was almost guaranteed We need not pursue the epic story of that Far Eastern conflict in all its thrilling details and infinite variety, but prefer here to discuss the motives which animated the Japanese in their great venture. Many will simply declare that shameless aggression was the one motive fostered and made decisive by the examples and success of Nazi Germany in the West. But this is by no means sufficient as an explanation. Aggression generally has its roots in a certain soil, and the case of Japan needs more just study. Everyone knows that her dense population required an outlet if she were not to be doomed, in spite of all her fresh vigor and almost Western efficiency to permanent poverty in the mass of her people. Everyone who knows that she had within the last few decades assimilated at an almost magical rate all that the Western nations could teach her of the arts of war and of peace. But so many people in the West forget it. what so many people in the West forget is that she had also assimilated the example of these Western powers in acquiring colonies by any means they could for their surplus population and for their general enrichment. Britain, France, Belgium, and Portugal had, to carve their career and reach their destiny, acquired mainly, if not wholly by force, vast tracts of the earth. And when Germany had begun to follow their example, they checked her design by robbing her of all her lately acquired colonies. Even America had taken the Philippines under her wing, and it was obviously only her own abundant home territory which rendered further conquests unnecessary. How then could Japan fail to reflect that her only way to salvation from overpopulation and its evils was to do what these exemplars of the Old West had done? But now we must add another factor which no one in the West seems to think of and certainly never mentions, and which nevertheless is of the greatest ethical interest and importance. While Japan was not a Christian country, and was heir to none of the grand moral principles of that religion, and while, therefore, she could not herself feel bound by such principles, and perhaps not even moved by them at all, the Western powers were all professedly Christian nations, basing their conduct on the Christian code. That code, interpreting or stating it in the most general way, involves and indeed demands a large amount of unselfish help, kind consideration, and even sheer mercy between man and man, nation and nation. Japan's psychological attitude was a silent argument within herself, which said that if these were Christian nations, they would readily accede to her polite request for help to solve her difficulty in the matter of finding room, air, and a decent livelihood for her bursting population. It only required the very thing which these nations profess to believe and practice, a little kindly help and consideration. She therefore turned to them in all good faith and asked for help. What did she receive? To her amazement, she found that no help whatsoever was either forthcoming or contemplated. Nay, worse, she found that the main policy of these Western powers was to deny her any chance of becoming as powerful as they were. <laughs> I mean, Peter, come on, mate! This is ridiculous. (laughs) Sorry, this is of all his of all of his arguments, this is ridiculous. Oh yeah, through just through Christian charity, you're going to help Japan become more powerful and establish an empire because its people need somewhere to live because there's too many too many of them. (laughs) Come on! I mean, this is the I mean, okay, Christian principles, but that's never going to happen in a million years. Uh, Anyway, let's carry on. Um, To her amazement, uh, um, she found no help whatsoever was forthcoming or contemplated. Nay worse, she found that the main policy of these Western powers was to deny her any chance of becoming as powerful as they were. She found that Australia was adamant in declining to allow any Japanese immigration based, although there was only about 6 million Australians in the subcontinent which could, with ordinary work and development, sustain scores of millions. I mean, I I would say rejecting immigration is always good. So uh, she found that the white people who came to the East came to lap up the cream of it, not satisfied with their already vast gains and with and and wealth and power, they came to China, India, Burma, and wherever they found the people of the East weak enough to exploit and exploited these lands and races to the best of their abilities. In short, Japan discovered that she had been fooled. She had taken for granted that these Christian nations were Christians and followed Christian principles. She found that she was mocked at. They had no idea. Uh, they had no more idea of practicing Christianity than the cannibals of Borneo and New Guinea. I mean, somewhere in his grave, Machiavelli is just like choking on laughter here. I'm sorry, but it's just never going to happen. Sorry, Christians. I mean, it's not even Christians. Anybody who believes that, um, you know, in in, in the great game of geopolitics, in the grand game, um, that the great powers are going to, You know, be Christian (laughs) in their outlook towards foreign nations is, you know, this is a level of uh, kind of blue eyed naivety that I find uh, frankly ridiculous from Nickel. Uh, Japan could see her surplus population starve to death and get not one square yard of even empty territory from these so called Christian powers. She might get some temporary help when struck by an earthquake. But permanent help, no. It is easy to follow out the further silent argument which swayed the soul of Japan. And it was this, that every nation must look to its own right arm to get what it required or what it wanted. Correct. All ethical protections were evidently camouflage, or if not entirely that, were strictly limited to individuals and had no application to states. Japan, therefore, must fall into line with the Western powers and proceed by the principle of getting what they wanted by their own might. She naturally stated with conditions and affairs. Um, she naturally started with conditions and affairs near her own door. Russia provided copious provocation before Japan made her war. Okay, so you know maybe he's making the the case in the you know deliberately absurd or whatever, but he's basically outlining why Japan had the militant stance it did, because the Western powers have showed it, that it understood no other language. So what choice did it have? Okay, that's fair enough as an argument, I would say. Uh, Russia, Russia provided copious provocation before Japan made war on her in 1905 and asserted her interests in Mancuria, Korea, and other Chinese territories this led to the inevitable reaction of china herself and to her boycott of japanese products the continued penetration of russia led to the japanese sponsored state of Man- manchukuo sorry manchukuo uh, manchukuo and the stubborn trade resistance of china proper to the armed invasion of japan That invasion and campaign was called a mere Chinese affair by Japan but to all the world outside it it was an act of aggression. It was certainly the first big step taken by Japan to put in operation the principle of force which he had been silently learning from the western nations. When therefore Britain and America condemned her campaign and took certain steps to show her condemnation she was not in the least impressed by their moral profession seeing in them only a fine covering for their fear of losing their own selfish interests in China if Japan succeeded. Quite right that assessment would have been. She began to contemplate a still bigger venture, the task of driving Western interests right out of the Far East and ensuring the wealth of the East for the Eastern races. And quite right too that Japan should want that. That she meant to be for the controlling power in all the East was certain and natural for she was by far the most advanced judged by almost any human standards one might select she might uh, she began to contemplate a still bigger venture and also i would mention that china was down at this time right china's up now in history and it has been up historically in history but uniquely i would say in the lot in the long durée china was kind of down after the 19th century so it would be natural for Japan to start thinking, like, I want a big piece of this pie for myself. They're down, now's my chance. Now's, now's our chance. Um, it's just natural, I think. Power hates a vacuum, right? So, you know, if, if China's uh, weak, Japan is strong, it's going to want to start pecking, I would say. Peking, you might say. Boom, boom. She began to contemplate a still bigger venture Uh, So we did that. Uh, When, therefore, the European war broke out and these Western nations were once again showing how little their profession of Christianity had to do with their actual behavior, Japan felt that her hour had arrived. If they were once more fighting, each for what it felt right, so should Japan. And her claim seemed to her a just one, freedom to find room for her vast and overcrowded populace and a right to expand in that sphere of the earth where she was the predominant power and where the western powers had no moral claim at all. The culmination of all this blend of mental process and outward conditions led to Pearl Harbor. The perfidy of that sudden attack without any notice of warning of war has been denounced everywhere in scathing language and yet it is understandable. Germany's methods had made the old courtesy of declaring war by the former intimation look out uh, uh, by the former sorry. Let me start that sentence again. Germany's methods had made the old courtesy of declaring war by a former intimation look rather out of date and even quixotic. If you are going to attack a powerful enemy, you must surely get in your first blow; otherwise, you might fall fail altogether. And what is the sense in going to war if you begin by spoiling your main chance of winning it? This is not the place to give a dissertation on the morals of war generally, but it is worth reflecting that the crueler war becomes, the guiltier the war maker feels. So that, once having consented to engage in such a thing, the less does he bother about the old courtesies which used to modify it. Besides, Japan knew that her great venture against America and Britain was fraught with dire peril, for she might have measured her inexhaustible resources with her own limited ones. Her only chance was to get in the knockout blow first, and no fine sense of honour must stand in the way. If the Japanese in their attack on Pearl Harbour showed an element of perfidy, we can at least understand what impelled them to it? If they showed arrogance in challenging both Britain and America to mortal conflict, we must admit that they also showed amazing courage. And if we characterize their whole venture as sheer aggression, we must admit that it only different from our own past generations in being waged against powerful states already in possession while we seized what we wanted from poor primitive races Who could not prevent us? Those who condemn Japan out of hand for trying to get by force what she wanted in the far eastern hemisphere should ask themselves when and how did Britain get all of India, Burma, Hong Kong, Singapore, Malay, and the hundred islands of the Pacific, plus parts of China's coast? If it had been If it had to be repeated that Japan, in entering the Second World War, was only doing what she had learned to do from our own Western example, Japan was also a part of the Axis with mutual assistance obligations to her partners. One cause of the conflict between America, Britain, Australia on one side and the Japanese on the other was the great racial difference and antagonism. This increased the bitterness and led to much mutual slander. Both sides were soon accusing each other of inanities, and it must be said that the epithets bestowed by several of the Allied officers on their Japanese opponents did far more to credit to themselves than to these opponents. When we have a man call his foes vermin, we are apt to think he has merely been beaten by them in some tricks of the game and is in an ugly temper. The Japs certainly reaped amazing success for many many months, and whatever their future history may be, their first exploits in Malay, in the Malay Peninsula, Siam, Burma, and in the Pacific will never be forgotten. It was inevitable that in such a a world war, when so many neutral countries were overrun, apart from those which were for the time being being defeated and occupied, there must arise burning questions concerned with the treatment of those lands by the victor, and with the attitude of their citizens towards them. It must be said at once that seldom has the human nature shown itself more, <coughs> more prejudiced, mean, vengeful, and spiteful than it did when confronted with these difficulties. Anyone can imagine the enormous perplexities which beset the French, Norwegian, Dutch and Belgian authorities and politicians when Hitler overran uh, and then controlled these states. Good old-fashioned patriotism simply could not solve the situation, for that meant a continuance of active opposition to an armed enemy totally illegal under international law, which in turn meant gradual extermination. Secret hatred and obstruction might, of course, go on, and it did, but the rulers of the invaded lands had to accept and to carry out certain necessary, but in general, mild and lawful conditions laid on them by the Nazi conquerors. They simply had no alternative, unless sheer lunacy. Moreover, those who simply praise the resistors and saboteurs as the only true patriots, then and later, and who condemn out of hand or who try to arrange some sort of organised running of the country whilst the enemy was in power, seem to forget that Hitler never treated their lands, apart from France of course, as lands to be conquered because they had raised war against him. He merely used them as absolutely necessary for his own defence, for the time being exactly as we treated Iraq and Iran and other countries where we behaved to plotters and saboteurs against us just as hitler had behaved to his, in his occupied lands their rulers therefore and government in trying to get along with hitler as best they could till the war was over had in mind that they were not dealing exactly with a victorious and overbearing enemy but rather with a temporary power which was only to take over the reins and direct the actions of the state and citizens for a certain period. It followed, surely, that not only was some sort of cooperation with the invaders necessary and absolutely beyond their power to refuse, but it was far different from cooperating with an actual enemy. Indeed, it is hard to see how true patriotism... Uh, Sorry, I lost my place here. Uh, where, where, Where are we? Yeah, indeed, it is hard to see how true patriotism on the part of the Dutch and the Norwegians could be other than a discreet and wise collaboration with Hitler's officials and soldiers till such a time as the war came to some issue. For this policy, while it must willy-nilly assist Hitler to some extent, was not helping him against their own country, but only against his real enemies, Britain and America. And more vital to save their own country from worse suffering and greater disasters. In short, to make out that those rulers and politicians who worked under the invaders were traitors is a charge at once stupid and slanderous, and has been generally made by those who were never faced with the terrible dilemma which faced the governments of Belgium, Holland and the rest. That dilemma was simply this, either to flee away to England, if possible, and be safe, while the vast populace was left helpless and bewildered behind, or to stay and make the best working terms possible with the invading powers, with a view to making the occupation as tolerable as possible. One may have a certain sympathy with these governments and leaders who fled to London, but one cannot have deep sympathy with those who remained and faced the rather terrible and certainly, um, Uh, and certainly most unpleasant task of getting the best terms they could from power they could no longer defy or defeat. Should we have applauded Churchill, our whole government, and the royal family if they had deserted us in a successful invasion by Germany, if they had scuttled away to America from safety there, and from safety there told us to die in the last ditch? It was easy and sounded patriotic for the Dutch, Norwegian, and Belgian statesmen to shout their slogans of defiance from the security and comfort comfort of London, and to urge their compatriots in their homeland to sabotage the German invaders in every possible way, while they themselves ran not one risk by their talk. It may have been patriotism, but it was certainly cheap, and when at last Germany was ousted and the independence of these lands was restored, for these returning rulers to proceed to castigate, persecute and penalise, those public officers and officials who had not deserted their country in its hour of need as collaborators and traitors, because they had been compelled to do so by Germany, had uh, as Germany had ordered, was an exhibition of spite and meanness, rarely equaled in the annals of nations. Uh, on this front, he raises a good point, I think, um, quite why he's digressed to this I don't know because he was talking about Japan, but presumably he's going to come on to Japan's occupations and this is the setup for it. Um, Or at least I hope he's going to. It may be objected that it was less the London refugee rulers than the underground resistors at home who later on attacked all non-resisters as collaborators. It is true that these underground saboteurs Became the most ferocious accusers of their more peaceful fellow citizens. Why? For two reasons. First, because some of them really imagined that such violence was the only true patriotism. And second, because almost to a man, they turned out to be communists or revolutionaries and found this whole episode in their country's history an excellent chance to attack the solid center of the established bourgeois system. Bloody communists. It only needs a moment's sane reflection to realize that if the whole populace, disarmed as it was, had taken to sabotage and violence, there would have resulted the very worst horrors of chaos. And one has yet to learn that true patriotism can consist in bringing such horrors on one's country. On the contrary, those who patiently tried to make the burden of Nazi rule for the time being as tolerable as possible were doing far better service to the mass of the people. Unless patriotism is to be accepted as a mere blind, insensate passion, which reads nothing of the consequences and is destitute of all wisdom and patience, then those leaders who were left in Norway, Holland, Belgium and France to deal with the actualities of Nazi rule were, to say the least, as patriotic as those who shouted war cries in London or who crept about in the dark, wrecking trains or stabbing German officers in the back after their own armed forces had failed to avert military defeat. It will be necessary to deal later with the political bias which animated the whole tendency to find scapegoats for the debacle of these lands. But it must be pointed out that where there did seem possibly certain men in Norway, Holland and other overrun countries who actually aided the invaders whether in procuring labor for Germany, food for her armies, or other forms of gear and wealth, these persons could not in honesty be called traitors. For their idea was that by collaboration with Hitler, they may gain for their country a final state of security and well-being in a new European system of political industrial federation. (laughs) Which basically ended up happening anyway. So (laughs) Uh, it must be realized that In any case, these men were perfectly entitled to think a German war victory would be as good as perfectly entitled to think a German um, would be better than an Allied victory. We always assume that everybody everywhere wants us to win. Uh, And yeah, that's a good point as well. He's saying that some of these people in Norway and Holland may think, well, you know, maybe better under the Germans than, than under the Americans. And um, certainly in hindsight, they would have been right, wouldn't they? They would have been right. Uh, at least we're not speaking German. The truth is that, apart from this war altogether, many intelligent people had already seen beyond the whole horizon of a narrow patriotism to a wider world of citizenship governed, by the, on the one hand, by the realities of trade, minerals, industry the needs and resources, and on the other, by a nobler view of the equality of all men in the essentials of simple humanity. That these men had a true vision and were setting their feet in the destined path of our race cannot be doubted by anyone who is sensitive to the current of progressive thought, or who can judge by the tokens of past social and biological history. In the case before us, when passions were everywhere heated by war, It was, of course, inevitable that these men should be attacked as traitors, but from the higher and more far-sighted point of view, they were experimenting in a new procedure which they honestly believed would be of genuine service to their fellow countrymen. Quisling in Norway and Laval in France drew the most attention to themselves by this apparent collaboration with the enemy, so much so that the former had bequeathed a new name to our language. The name of infamy—that's where the you know the idea of a quisling comes from, right? Uh, but consider the amazing sincerity of—sorry—consider uh, the amazing insincerity of this charge made by Britons against these men. According to a definition, a quisling is one who aids his enemy from within, while the real patriot is he who fights the enemy to the bitter end. What then are we, who call those Persian statesmen who resisted the British invasion, those Syrians, those French colonials? Why, we hailed the Quislings in those countries as patriots, and we denounced the patriots as criminals, and got some of them hanged later. Such is the consistency of our fine fair-play judgments. Persia had exactly as much right to object to invasion by Britain as Norway had to invasion by Hitler. But because we were the invaders of Persia, we could not possibly be in the wrong. And because the Quislings in Persia collaborated with us, they could not possibly be Quislings. What a humble, broad-minded nation we are. Friend enemy yet again, Peter. If Hitler had won the war, these very men now so vulgarly denounced as traitors would most assuredly have been put on pedestals as wise, far-seeing statesmen who would have guided their people through troubling times to a happy conclusion. Such is the shifting sand of popular judgment at the mercy of every gale of human prejudice and rumor. Let us clinch the matter by looking at Denmark. I don't know why he's just switched to talking about this when he was talking about Japan. It's kind of a... Fairly abrupt change from nickel here. I don't know if he actually returns to it. Doesn't look like he comes back to Japan. Okay. I'll have to call the episode something like Enter Japan and the question of Quislings or something like that. The quizling question. Um, if Hitler had won the war, these very men... Now so vulgarly denounced traitors would most assuredly have been put on pedestals as wise, far-seeing statesmen who had guided their people through troubled times to a happy conclusion. Yeah, we, we, we do, okay. Let us clinch the matter by looking at Denmark. Denmark unanimously, we might say, consented to Hitler's use of her territory and her property. She accepted his promise that it was a mere temporary occupation to be followed after the war by complete withdrawal. And... Amazing, is it not? Denmark has never been accused of harboring Quislings and collaborators. Why? Because apparently the Danes, from the king downwards, were all Quislings. What a fine, logical, impartial people we are when we begin calling people traitors and Quislings. The case of France is not the same as those of other lands. France had declared gratuitous war against Germany, and she soon lay prostrate beneath Germany's feet. But this phrase is quite misleading and unjust in many ways, for Germany placed a remarkable mild yoke upon her beaten foe, so much so that the French were agreeably surprised. It is all the less surprising then that Pertain and his ministers resolved to get along as peaceably and reasonably as possible with the new conquerors. Collaboration to a large extent was the only alternative to increasing ruin. pertain and his men stood and took uh, the shock and wrestled with the sore problems which had to be wrestled with. The Vichy government was looked at askance by the Allies and at last reprobated and denounced, simply and solely because she no longer took active part on the Allies' side. And as for Laval, his one crime really was that all his political life, He had tried to bring to an end the age-old quarrel between France and Germany, and so to heal a festering sore which had plagued all Europe for generations. But the mass of people cannot imagine such a generous political aim, and therefore sneer at the idea of it. They can only understand the good old way of fighting it out, and beginning again as soon as possible, with vengeance and retaliation, and uh, the accepted and sacred principles of action. It is not intended here to relate the history of the war. It is well known in all its capital episodes and events. Suffice it to say that from 1942 onwards, to the close, the tide had turned. Indeed, any observer could easily judge that time lay entirely with the Allies. They had inexhaustible resources with which to confront the German Reich. The United States alone could have outmatched her in men, material, food and munitions. Russia had vast numbers on her side, so far as military operations went, and went increasingly better equipped, both by her own efforts and by Allied help. She began to prove not only irresistible in defence, but overwhelming in offence also. It cannot be claimed that the ultimate defeat of Germany proved any military or naval superiority on the part of the Allies. Their victory gave no ground whatever for pride. It was simply a case of overwhelming superiority in Allied manpower and resources. Germany was superior during the first two years of the war in her equipment and preparation. She amply showed it by her far-flung conquests On the sea, she took enormous and deadly toll of our shipping. On the land, she swept everything before her. Italy proved definitely inferior to the other combatants, combatants, both on the land and on the sea, but only the vanity of a narrow patriotism would seek to diminish the courage and success of the Germans in all their operations. Indeed, it is a curious fact that again and again when she did suffer a reverse. It was only when her enemies altogether outnumbered her. The River Plate battle is an example. The usual version of it emphasizes the disparity between a battleship and a cruiser, and deems it a fine heroic achievement for the British, smaller ships to have outclassed the German big one. But the cold facts are that the pocket battleship was very little bigger than the Exeter, having 11-inch guns, to the Exeter's 8-inch. The Exeter was supported by two other fast cruisers with 6-inch guns. The Graf Spee was short of both fuel and ammunition. Is it such a glorious victory, or such a shameful defeat, for one slightly bigger ship to be mastered by three? There is not the slightest reason to question the heroic valour of both sides in the fight but equally there is no valid reason for calling it a grand British victory. In the case of the Hood and of the Bismarck, it is also interesting. When these two were matched one against the other without interference, one might say, the Hood was sunk almost with the first shell. This has always been called a lucky or unlucky shot, one chance in 10,000. Perhaps so, but there again the fact remains that when equally matched, the German shanked the British battleship. Later on, there was jubilation in England when the Bismarck was sunk in turn. But how was she sunk? It required the whole Atlantic squadron to do it. Destroyers, cruisers, battleships, aircraft and submarines on one side and a solitary battleship on the other. No great great glory there. But British naval men... so, So basically he's saying that. The Allies had quantity on their side, and the Germans had quality on their side. The Germans, man for man, vessel for vessel, battleship for battleship, were better than the Allies. And the Allies, all they had really was manpower and superior kind of uh, reign of quantity, if you want to put it that way. But British navalmen have never uh, have ever been the first to recognize and admit the sterling qualities of the German Navy, especially in shooting. Neither in this war nor in the previous one, did Germany have a chance against the vastly superior, uh, sorry, the vastly more numerous and more experienced British Navy. In submarines alone, she outnumbered the British, but that is a very limited branch of naval operation. Even so, she very nearly, in both wars, delivered the knockout blow to our commerce and our food. As to the Mediterranean, the chief naval fight against Italy was a victory to the British, not through a plain daylight fight, but by means of a very clever trap, which induced the Italians to place themselves in a most favourable position where they had no chance. As to land operation, in other words, they were outstrategized. As to land operations, the Germans gave away only when outnumbered or out equipped, as in North Africa, when they did where they did wonders until they were cut off from reinforcements both of men, fuel and material. And when Italy was secretly deserting her, most impartial persons will admit that Germany was a courageous and honourable foe as a fighter, well worthy of British steel, as the phrase went. Air operations offered similar evidence in the battle of britain in 1940 the british airmen scored a great success and will forever be remembered in the fine phrase of mr churchill when he recorded their exploit in the house of commons no praise is too high for the heroism of these young men plus sacrificed poland's airmen they perhaps saved britain from a terrible defeat This is the propaganda and generally accepted version. But if Hitler's real object was invasion after destruction of British air power, the Battle of Britain did have exactly this result. It has been officially admitted that at its end our air power had been practically wiped out. We had only a few old-fashioned planes left, only a few score airmen, while Hitler still had thousands of planes and men left. Why then did he not invade? The only reasonable answer is because Britain was never his real enemy, and he still hoped for his sane reaction when he attacked Bolshevism soon afterwards. When we number the planes they brought down with those they lost and marvel at their apparent superiority over the German airmen, we have in fairness to remember not only that they were fighting for the very life of their country in in her extremity, while the Germans were not. But, it was, uh, but that, it was mainly a fighter against a bomber battle, and the odds are all in favour of the fighter. So he's saying that fighters are kind of uh, built for air-to-air combat and bombers are built for air-to-land combat, obviously. Um, uh, we knew all about this later on when our bombers went over Germany and a high percentage was lost on almost every occasion It was not until towards the end of the war when our bombers could go with good fighter protection that they had escaped this unequal combat. If the fighters had been as highly developed with as long a radius of flight in 1940 as they were in 1944 and 1945, one might well picture another event in history than the actual one. As the tide turned in the favour of the Allies, those famous conferences began to be held among the big three rulers, Churchill, Roosevelt and Stalin, assured that victory lay on their side, those three met more than once to determine practical strategy for final victory, and to form plans for the post-war treatment of Germany. Of the practical strategy, there is little to be said here, except that after uh, Capablanca, Churchill retired from strategic control, which went to the USA. While ignorant of the frothy idolizers of Stalin and all things Russian were shouting for a second front in Europe, the military and naval authorities, and indeed the whole brains and technique of Britain and America, were quietly and secretly preparing for a successful landing on the continent, and could not of course afford even to enlighten these brawling civilian critics as to the steps they were taking, and the immense detail of preparation required for this very venture. But the clamor for a second front by men who were mostly uh, safe and lucrative in civilian jobs at home and who during the earlier days of war were uh, definitely opposed to the war and dubbed it an imperialist war of aggression and even obstructed it to the verge of treason was another clear index of how the wind was blowing in the political sphere of the whole business of this world cataclysm. For they took a little trouble to hide the fact that what they were interested in, what they were content to see blood flow for and cities crumble to the ground for, was not the victory of Britain, not the safe emergence of their own land and realm, not the triumph of human freedom or the abolition of all future war, not the restoration of independence and sovereignty and future security for all those lands little and big, which had been overrun and violated by the Nazi hordes. No, it was none of these things. It was just one thing, the triumph of Soviet communism. It is true that there were thousands of Britons by no means communistic in mind, who were so lost in admiration of the material recovery and comeback of the Russian army that they joined these others in their laudatory campaign. But the core of this campaign was that section of our nation which cares nothing for any particular nation, except perhaps for Russia, but only for the triumph of communism in every nation. They were no doubt intensely happy to see others beside themselves so hypnotized by the military prowess of Russia that they took for granted that a people who could fight like that must be a great civilized, cultured, and superior people, for such was the assumption made by many who had hitherto thought little one way or the other about Russia. It is distressing to think that so many people still identify fierceness in war with all the civilized virtues, forgetting that it is precisely such martial prowess which so often precludes most of the very virtues which civilization, and certainly Christian civilization, requires and connotes the quote-unquote gentle history of Genghis Khan might have enlightened such naive admirers of mere pugnacity. Indeed, it might have given them also a very fitting key to the modern methods of Moscow. The leopard does not change his spots, nor the Tartar his terror. The dangerous feature of this quick and frivolous adulation of Russia was the impetuous was the impetus it gave to communism in this country and to everything which is termed left or red. It led to a vast confusion of, uh, of ideas which is still working havoc by undermining the whole fabric of those verities which have been proven, tested and established in our Western society by centuries of experience, of suffering, sacrifice and vision verities of integrity, of personal values, of liberty, of mercy, of humility, of magnanimity. This disintegrating, dissolving tide was quickly and consciously launched on the Western world by the exploits of the Russians on the battlefield. It received additional momentum from the various agencies of propaganda, and not one of our leaders so much as raise a finger to warn us that Soviet Russia remained what she had always been a fanatical enemy of a whole place and power in the world it added immense strength and credit to the perfectly conscious communists in our midst they felt as if they were almost the high priests of a new religion in britain was it not now almost sacrilege to criticize much more disparage anything russian how things change eh they were always our friends they were always our enemies the second front came at last, when the story of its achievement, that is, of its actual launching on the shores of France, was to be told in fullness and in detail. It will certainly reveal an enormous mass of toil, invention, ingenuity, coordination, patience, foresight, and skill, probably unparalleled in the annals of any campaign. Once thoroughly established in Brittany, the Allied forces could hardly fail to go ahead slowly, perhaps but surely. The fighting was stubborn and bitter on both sides, but the Allies had now overwhelming superiority in men. Equipment and aircraft and the German communications were soon smashed beyond hope of repair. Indeed, by this time, 1944, most of Germany's cities lay in ruins. They had been systematically pounded day and night, for months. There was no longer any pretense of hitting special targets. Every city was a target, without regard for the civil population. After one concentrated attack lasting only 20 minutes, it is recorded that 40,000 people in one city were killed, almost as many as were killed in all Britain over the whole period of the entire war. And yet, to the very end, it was quite common to hear worthy Britons speak of righteous wrath of the terrible work of the Germans in bombing our towns. Amidst all the talk of war crimes, the slaughter of a mere 40,000 civilians in 20 minutes by deliberate wholesale and concentrated bombing is never even mentioned. And, And I should say, by the way, if you have a look at the situation in Gaza today, it has taken the Israelis three months to kill about 18,000 people so far around last I saw. So imagine 40,000 people being killed in 20 minutes. It's, I mean, it's just a, it's a whole other scale of carnage that we're talking about there, okay? Um, whole, um, yeah, so the slaughter of a mere 40,000 civilians in 20 minutes by deliberate wholesale and concentrated bombing is never even mentioned. Well a tremendous fuss is being made over revolting conditions in a free prison camps like Belsen. And the warders had to struggle with a chaos of disorder and a lack of all necessities, mainly, if not wholly, caused by the Allied bombings and blockades. So he's saying that the reason that people were starving in the camps is because the Allies, the Allies had starved them out. Yet the Allies were causing such havoc to, to the Germans, so they couldn't supply them. <laughs> Leaving aside the question of war crimes, It is easy to see how, inevitably, Germany was overwhelmed under this avalanche of fire and fury. Only her most secret and secluded bases escaped until nearly the end. Many many were underground, and all were screened. Von Rustet's last despairing dash uh, to drive back the invading flood of British and Americans could never have succeeded beyond a very limited time and space, and of course it faded out. Not even these ingenious weapons, the pilotless bomb and rocket bomb, could have altered the course of victory, for it came too late to serve its purpose. But it was indeed a sinister and nerve-wracking implement of war, but perfectly, quote-unquote, legitimate, a form of long-range artillery, worse in the experience of most Londoners than the worst air raids that they had ever endured. Silent, Unpredictable in time or locality, without warning, and exasperatingly hard to divert or destroy in the skies, they went on almost ceaselessly, with the most shattering blast of destruction when they fell. Within three months, in the year of 1944, over 5,000 civilians in the area of London were killed by them, and hundreds of thousands of homes wrecked and damaged. The Londoners' cup of bitterness was again full. Perhaps it was not wonderful that they assailed the Germans for using this fell weapon as worse as the worse Huns than ever. Worse Huns than ever. But justice naturally asks what are 5,000 in three months compared with 5,000, 10,000, and 20,000 in a single hour in many a German city at that very stage of the war? Can there can be simply no comparison between the death toll inflicted by Germany on our civilians and our uh, buildings and that which we afflicted on hers. We retaliated tenfold, one hundredfold in this terrible way of waging war. And yet, I mean, it kind of reminds me of uh, the situation in Israel at the minute, to be honest. Um, anyway, let's continue. Uh, We retaliated tenfold, one hundredfold in this terrible way of waging war and yet continued not only to lay all the blame on the feet of our foe, but to condemn as barbarous the very conduct we were indulging in with hundredfold ferocity. The peculiar logic of people who are suffering from nervous trial is well seen in the case of the V-bombs, for they were denounced, uh, they denounced this weapon. Uh, as a sample of the cruel and cowardly nature of the Nazi methods, on the ground that the bomb fell anywhere and could not be directed to any specific military target, which testified that the Germans were merely concerned in spreading death and terror and havoc anywhere. And the people who argued this never seemed to ask themselves this. Which is the most callous and criminal action, to shoot a bomb over a city knowing it may kill Help the civilians and may, on the other hand, miss any human target or take their bombs in, hundred right, uh, in hundreds right over a city and deliberately fire them down on the heads of thousands of civilians. The Germans were taking a chance of hitting or missing from a great distance. The British and Americans were taking no chance at all. They deliberately, carefully and at close range deluged every city in Germany with bombs of the heaviest and deadliest load that they could carry, obliterating, uh, obliteration bombing, as at last we rightly called it. To put it mildly, the charge of barbarism against the Nazis in this matter comes very badly from the Allies, but an honest moralist is seldom uh, listened to in war. We shall come later to the crowning diabol- diabolism Sorry, We shall come later to the crowning diabolism, the atomic bomb, besides which, in satanic evil, all our previous inhuman bombing becomes brotherly love. The defection of Italy from her active alliance with Germany and her unconditional surrender in September 1943 certainly contributed to the eventual defeat of the senior Axis partner. The story of how the Allies carried their victorious campaign in Africa, against the great German general Rommel, right across the Mediterranean, in Sicily, and then into Italy, is itself an epic, packed with innumerable incidents, each fraught with incredible daring and danger, with suffering and endurance, with heroism and sacrifice, with ruin and terror and death. The Italians were obviously weakening. How far their hearts uh, were ever in the war is doubtful. As a race, they seem extremely liable to enthusiasm when things are going well in any particular enterprise, but equally prone to succumb and retreat when the tide turns against them. Mussolini could not count on his troops so long as the Axis was in the ascent, but they proved despondent, weak, and even treacherous when they saw the Allies getting the upper hand." There were was added to the motives which led to their complete surrender, the same political fever which was now beginning to dominate the whole war. The supposed Reds of Italy saw their chance of revenge on the man who had suppressed them 20 years ago if they complied with the Allies' demands. They were, in fact, real quislings. Bargaining began between the Allied and Italian leaders. Mussolini had already been more or less politely removed from power simply because his arms had had failed. From that hour of his political fall, he was doomed. The merciless wolves of communism were on his track. Even the moderate politicians cared nothing now for the man who once rescued their country from chaos and misery and had given it a long period of increasing stability, unity, and prosperity. All they wanted was to get out of the war at as little cost as they could, and at no matter what the cost, to their honour. They had no option but surrender, but this surrender was by no means unconditional. Certain assurances were given, certain bribes held out. As Italy had been given certain promises of reward for help to the Allies in the First World War, and these promises were never fulfilled at Versailles. It is not worth detailing those that were made on this occasion, as they had no greater chance of being implemented. We shall see presently that the value the Allied professions and promises and principles had on a far more important field. Suffice it to say, that the Italian leaders who had now supplanted Mussolini agreed to the Allied demand that they should hide their surrender from the Germans as long as possible, so as to give the Allies an extra bit of advantage. This piece of duplicity, it must be said, did as little credit to Britain and America as it did to Italy, thoroughly justified the hard things Germany said about all of them. We cannot but admire those regiments of the Italian army which scorned such tactics and such a surrender and kept up the fight in loyalty to Mussolini and to the cause which they had joined in 1940. But, of course, their hope was gone. The brunt of the fighting now fell on Germany, and she fought with the same stout and stubborn spirit which marked her whole military character. It was a slow and painful progress northwards in Italy, but the north itself was undermined now by the fierce and vengeful hordes of workers who had at last found their chance to cut the throats of all the quote-unquote fascists they could. Probably the full story will never be told of the reign of horror, which now began in northern Italy. What we know is enough to indicate the fuller tale. We know how Mussolini himself was cornered at last by a wild mob, murdered and his corpse submitted to the most foul atrocities by men who were to bring light and redemption to the world forsooth. That there were those who consciously condemned Mussolini for having brought his country to such a pass, as it now goes in, goes without saying. The truth is that, in all the the orgy of vengeance, which was now beginning in the liberated countries, the genuine patriots were a mere handful, compared to the disgruntled, Moscow-inspired, murder-minded communists in all these lands, who made use of the glorious chance offered them in the collapse of Germany to shroud their fierce personal and political hatred and vengeance under the cloak of patriotism and it is worth remembering guys that those scenes of Mussolini being hung up and so on were done by communists and any good patriotic Italian knows that that it was the communists who did that not normal Italians if In France alone, even before Germany surrendered, the knives of the communists were already dripping in the blood of their political victims and the so called quote unquote people's court were simply their tools and instruments of murder, just as were the Kharkov trials in Russia. This pitiless process of vengeance spread to all the former allies of Germany and indeed reached wilder uh, and more horrible dimension in Hungary. Romania, Greece and Bulgaria than it did in France, Belgium and the other overrun countries of the West. But this development reached its climax after the war was over and it must be left to our later pages. What was to be noted at this stage is that it was no longer the simple if narrow-minded and rather mean attack of would-be patriots on those they deemed to have been collaborators with the country. It had become more than the leaping fire of the foul political mania and ideology which stops at no crime, spares no opponent, and knows neither God nor morality. Such is the Bolshevik creed. Okay, um, I think I will call this episode The Course of War, because that's basically what we are uh, covering there. Um, The next chapter seems to flick over to the Eastern Front, where... Yeah, yes, we're going to have a look at Russia's Drive, Poland's fate, and the Axis Surrender next time. So I'll call this episode The Course of War. Uh, hope you uh, enjoyed it. As ever, I'll deal with any Super Chats on later shows. I'll, I'll, I'll catch them up if anybody sends any. Um, I'll remind people, Vax 2, 25% off all courses. Buy it now. Join the channel. But most importantly of all, ladies and gentlemen, get out. What goes on in this town is none of your business. As long as I'm living here, it is. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! Well, that's easily fixed.